I'm Tony Pringley, your host for the Diversified Podcast, a space where we celebrate and amplify the voices of entrepreneurs from underrepresented backgrounds. On my podcast, you'll hear firsthand from those who have maneuvered through various barriers and have taken a chance and made their business dreams into a reality. Let's go. back to the Diversified Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Tony Pringley, and I'm so excited you all are tuning in today. Today's guests are Ernest Holmes, JC Holmes, and Tavis Thompson, the co-founders of Codehouse. Codehouse is a 501c3 nonprofit that focuses on cultivating a strong pipeline between students of color and industry-leading technology companies. At its core, Codehouse aims to tackle the diversity gap in technology by providing exposure and resources to enhance students' technical skills, promoting internship and full-time placement, and elevating the next generation of diverse leaders in technology. Today, we are going to chat with Ernest, JC, and Tavis about their vision behind Codehouse, how to successfully gather funding for your business, and their thoughts on the lack of representation in tech. All right, let's get this conversation started. Hi, everyone. How are you? Good. What's going on with you, Tony? It's going good. Um, I'm so excited that we're able to chat today um, a little bit about Code House. So I think first, let's kind of get into the aha moment. I like to ask all of our guests about the aha moment um, of you know their business. So can we talk about the aha moment behind Code House? Like what made you want to build Code House? Sure. Um, so Code started back in 2019. Uh, I was a senior at Morehouse. JC was actually at NYU at the time, getting her master's, and Tavis was a junior at Morehouse. And uh, Tavis and I and a group of other students on campus came together to really get back in a bigger way to the larger Atlanta community. Um, being black in the tech industry has prompted like Tavis, myself, my sister to always give talks to middle and high school students on what it's like being a black man or black woman in the tech industry, right? What does it mean to be a software engineer? What does it mean to go work in the Silicon Valley? And we basically came together to come up with this one event called Tech Exposure Day. Um, that's where it all started. But the concept there was what happens when you integrate and connect K through 12 students with HBCU students studying um, computer science and other technical fields, and then also the tech industry, right? And so we invited 150 middle and high school students to Morehouse's campus, exposed them to HBCUs, but then really get them in front of these tech companies like Google, like PayPal, like Microsoft, like Twitter. And from there, it was not only just connecting them to, to these different tech industry giants, but also make sure that they can see people that look like them in the industry, right? Like what happens when a young black boy can see a black software engineer making a lot of money, doing amazing things, and that's where we all started. We had that event back in April 2019, and we've only grown since then. Wow, that's so exciting. And actually, so kind of going back into how important it is to see representation, how did you all get introduced to working in tech? For sure. Uh, I think, like, for me personally, 
I was, um, I want to say a freshman in high school, right? So I've always been interested in tech, but I took, I started to take it a little bit more seriously in my freshman year in high school, where I took this computer science class where we were able to build our own website. And so I was like, oh, this is so cool. So when I went to go visit down at Morehouse, um, I was able to meet Ernest. Ernest was actually my Morehouse brother, uh, Morehouse uh, Administrators Weekend brother. So he was the one that showed me around Morehouse and showed me everything that was phenomenal about Morehouse and showed me a lot about the brotherhood. And so I remember it was this one thing that he told me at the end of the trip. He, he told me that, you know, if you decide to come to Morehouse, I'll make sure that you get an internship at Google as a freshman like I am. And so wow. that kind of sold me to come down to Morehouse and um, major in computer science. And so like that, that freshman year, that's when I kind of got into tech where I was able to intern at Facebook. Okay, Ernest, that's super nice. Look, I would go to Morehouse too if someone said I'll get you a Google internship. <laughs> um, and JC, how did you get um, introduced to tech? Uh, I never really had teachers push me into the sciences, right? Uh, when I got to Spelman College, which, which is where I went to undergrad, I was very much interested in doing something in STEM, but I even had a high school teacher tell me that I didn't look like someone who would be good at the sciences, that I didn't look like a math major, which is the subject I was considering at the time when I first started at Spelman. And it wasn't, uh, that really discouraged me. And it actually wasn't until I got to Spelman and I got to see black women, black girls, black non-binary students who were excelling in the sciences, right? Not just math, but computer science, engineering, physics, chemistry, biochemical engineering, so many different subjects. And that really encouraged me to pursue a STEM degree. And specifically for computer science, I never would have considered it had my little brother not called me up in his junior year of high school to be like, hey, JC, I'm taking this really cool programming class. Have you ever done anything with programming? Uh, would you be interested in doing something with programming? And until we had that conversation, I had never thought about taking a CS class. Uh, but he convinced me that freshman year, my second semester, to take a CS course. And the rest is history. We like to say that I'm the reason he went to Morehouse because of my experience at Spelman, but he's the reason I'm in tech. Yeah, Ernest, it seems like you're introducing everyone into into the uh -oh. tech field. You know, I just try to do my part, try to help the people out. You know, yeah. <laughs> I would say, say, like in, in hindsight, like my pathway into the tech industry is also interesting. Like JC said, um, we're from New Jersey, small town, predominantly white town. And it wasn't until my first ever black teacher, um, black woman at that, um, for me to get introduced to computer science in my junior year of high school. So like, it's kind of funny, like looking back on it, how like we're giving back to the black and brown community where like in my pathway coming into the tech industry and coming to Google, right? The first introduction of computer science was by a black woman. So mm -hmm. um, there's always like full circle moments with all these stories. I love and I'm that. I'm going to shout out her name real okay. quick. Miss Connery is the reason that the three of us get to sit here because if she had not influenced Ernest, we would not have been influenced by him. Yeah, shout out to her and shout out to you all, of course, like building um, an organization that is all about um, giving back. And I kind of want to go more into what it means to really be a founder of such a successful company because starting your own business can be difficult and it can be like very, very intimidating. How did you all get the courage to really take the leap of faith and create Code House? 
I, w- I would say after that first event, we mm-hmm. just saw, I mean, we honestly received a lot of ama- like great feedback, like not only by the teachers who brought their students to the event, but even students were writing emails to us, thanking us for the mm-hmm. event. Um, the faculty and staff at Morehouse, Oklahoma, and Clark Atlanta loved the event. So it was like, you know, and the narrative was always like, we can't wait until next year. And we're like, oh, next year. Yeah, we were definitely thinking about that, <laughs> right? So it was like interesting to see how like, even though like we thought we were, we were proud of the event, but other people in the community also recognized that this was a very much so needed program for this community, right? So when it comes into making it into a business more, deciding whether we should make this in, into official nonprofit, it was kind of a no brainer because we just saw that there was a, a need there. And like specifically on that gap between high school to college, not many people have been doing a lot of work surrounding the tech industry on getting students to go through. So when it comes to creating a business, you, you should always narrow down into a, what exactly is the problem statement that you're trying to solve. It's very easy to say, hey, we're trying to help out the black community get into the tech industry, right? But that's a very blanketed statement. If we narrowed it down, it's like, okay, cool, we're trying to help black students get into the tech industry. Does that mean mm-hmm. middle school students? Does that mean high school students? Does it mean college students, PhD students, right? So when you narrow it all the way down, like, no, we're trying to help students transitioning into post-high school education get into the tech industry via pathways such as HBCUs, that becomes a very specific problem set. And you can start fine-tuning and creating programming around that so that you're making sure that you're staying in the scope that you're trying to solve for it. So that was kind of the progression and the mindset that we had. And we saw that like not too many other people were, were doing work in that space. So we saw that as an opportunity for us to help out in this way. Yeah. And and did you all have any hurdles when you were creating Code House? Um, I would say like the hurdles that we kind of went through was necessarily not knowing how to start, you know, uh, registering our organization as a nonprofit. So I would say like, I remember this summer after we had our first event, like me, Ernest, and a couple of students on on uh, the AUC campus, we came together and we met almost every night during the summer to kind of think about like what we need to do. Like what, what was our mission statement going to be? What is our vision statement going to be? Okay, like where are we going to have our organization be located at? So it was a lot of like questions that we had to answer in in that summer, where I think like that was one of our main hurdles, just you know trying to get it uh, started off. Yeah, and I was actually chatting with someone on another episode, and we were saying the first thing to do, like when you're creating your own business, is to come up with a name, because when you come up with a name, it's just like it feels more real than if you're like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm working on this thing for tech students, like X Y Z. But if you're like, hey, I'm working on something for Code House it can make it a little bit more easier to create uh, your business. Yeah, for sure. I, I would say like the way life works out, it's also interesting. Um, our parents, JC and my parents, uh, our father practiced law in New York City for many years and our mother was accounted for the state of Texas for many years. So like when it came into like people just knowing information about what it takes mm. to make sure that you have all the accounting needs that you need and all the legal matters that you might need to take care of um, in creating a 501c3, they were able to be super supportive Literally. and helpful with that process. Um, I would say like the bigger thing is just for me at least was just like proving to others that this is a, a valid effort to invest in, right? Um, I've always been very big on how can we have the most amount of impact without having to raise money? 
like you'll be surprised at how many people have reached out to us now and just like asking for advice on making nonprofit or just raising funds. And like, that's their initial like MO. Like I need, I want to raise money. I want to raise money. It's like, slow mm-hmm. down. What are, you, what are you raising money for? Right. Do you really need to raise a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand million dollars to accomplish what you want to accomplish? Or are you just trying to raise that money to make yourself feel good or whatever? Right. If you can focus on the impact that you're trying to have more than likely nine times out of 10, the money will follow. So even with that first event, like we were like, Hey, Google, Hey, Microsoft, Hey, Facebook, like we want your representation here. That's, you know, the bottom line, like regardless if you can help fund it or not, but we do want to feed the kids because kids need to eat. So we can give us mm-hmm. money for that too. Like, you know, like little home always talks to me because I say Google a lot. Um, but, um, you know, we need some funds to give the kids t-shirts and, and feed them, of course. So when you put it, put it in respect like that, it's like, Hey, we need money for food. They're like, okay, yeah, well, we can, we can, um, validate that. So mm-hmm. always try to find the impact first before like trying to raise money, I think is a big, big key Ab- to all this. Absolutely. I think if we're to put this in steps, right? Step one, yes, figure out your name, but two, figure out your mission statement. Like what is your elevator pitch? What is your business about in one line? And three, start that Google drive, get that outline together what are the different things that you need right create a draft summary for the first program that you're trying to put on what is the budget to go along with that but make sure you know how to articulate everything that you need to get off the ground so that when you do find investors people who believe in your mission right and that's not necessarily people who are going to invest right we said we had an accountant and a lawyer built into our family that doesn't happen for a lot of people but you're going to need to talk to accountants and lawyers at some point right so making sure that you know how to articulate your business your plan your nonprofit to them so that they believe in your mission and they want to join your team is incredibly important, right? So when we think about, I know we always want to jump to fundraising, but it's also about having the right team around you, Mm. right? Ernest and Tavis, I, we could not do this alone. If there was only one of us here, Codehouse would not be what it is. And even though we have three people representing Codehouse right now, we have a team of about 12 other people right, who could not be on this podcast that make Codehouse what it is. Mm-hmm. Making sure you have the right team is also incredibly important, but that comes down to, do you know how to articulate your business so that other people believe in your vision? Yeah, and how and how can someone know that someone is a good fit, like, for their team? Yeah, no, most definitely. I think, like, for us, um, like, kind of to piggyback off of what JC said, like, definitely being able to articulate, like, your mission and your vision of your business will help people want to buy in into that business. So that's how we were able to get everyone on our team. So we have, like, Dr. Kinley, who's over a lot of APS um, in a lot of school districts, you know, like, we were able to, like, pitch our idea to a lot of people and they were able to they were able to see the mission and the vision but one thing i do want to talk about is the passion so like a lot of times people go into like different businesses and not think about like the whole passion behind it and i think that's what made co-house so successful in the first place being able for us to see like you know um, a lot, like for me personally, I grew up on the South side of Chicago, so I, I didn't really get exposed to like technology, honestly, until I got into college. And so like for me, it was really important for me because I wanted to see students like me be able to be, be able to be su- successful throughout their technical career, but then at the same time, build g- generational wealth. And I think sometimes like when you have that passion and you have that 
that drive a lot of people are going to buy in into your organization. They're going to buy into like what you're so passionate about. And so like going along, it's like going along with what JC said, like being able to articulate your company and being able to find people to be underneath your company, you have to have that passion. Like the core of like what you're trying to do should be your passion. And I'm, and I, promise you that's how we were able to receive mm-hmm. you know million dollar grants from like google or like being able to receive grants from paypal was because we showed them that passion that we had and like i think that was why they were so confident and you know providing that you know funding for us yeah and what do you think kind of makes like getting gathering funding for a nonprofit a bit more different than gathering funding for say a for profit business do you think it's a bit more difficult or like, what are some tips that you could give to someone wanting to start a nonprofit? So I think it's interesting because people think here nonprofit and they don't truly understand what it means. Some people think nonprofit just means like, oh, you don't really need to worry about fundraising or like you don't need to worry about. <laughs> it's like almost as if like money's not a thing for nonprofits, which is the opposite of the truth, right? Um, you still need to raise funds. I think the only tangible difference is that people aren't investing you to make more money. They're investing you to make sure you have the right impact. So when Tavis mm-hmm. and Jason are talking about having the right passion, right? You need people to invest in you that align with your vision. So when you create that narrative, do whatever programs you're going to execute, that the money that they spent investing you was worthwhile. Um, so to be able to fundraise for a nonprofit, it's really about one having a vision and having a narrative that you can that will speak well to whoever you're pitching to but then also put in a system in place to make sure that they feel like the money was worth investing. So whether that's marketing and putting logos, places and everywhere on on t-shirts and all that good stuff, right? Making sure that they can connect to the students that they want to. The nature of our work is a little bit different since we can tangibly help these students get to the companies that invest in us, right? So with internships or full-time offers. So making sure that there's systems in place for them to connect with the students, whether it's informationals, sending out links to internships, whatever the case is, right? And then now what we're also focused on a lot is collecting the right data as well to make sure that um, the we can showcase all the great work and impact that we have, right? What are the confidence levels of these students after coming into our programs when it, in regards to going to HBCU and going to tech industry? How many students actually wind up getting internships after their first semester of their freshman year, which is not as common as you may think, right? So they, those are the different numbers that we're trying to track now to also showcase to our investors, like, trust me, like this work is valid. And also showcasing that this is a program that's worth scaling out as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about the reasons we're even doing this and the lack of diversity, spe- uh, strictly racially speaking, right, in the tech industry, scalability has to be on our minds to make sure that we can make sure we bring as many people that look like us into this field as possible. So always making sure to think about the future and how and what that will look like is very important as well. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you all are highlighting, obviously, the importance of a mission and vision, but also ensuring that you have the right people around you. And some people say that you should not mix your friends and family with your business, but um, Ernest, JC, you guys are brother, sister, Tavis, Ernest, you guys are like best friends. What do you think, like, what advice would you give to someone who wants to start a business with like a friend or a family? Like what has kind of been your experience with mixing family, friends and business? 
Run! Don't do it. <laughs> Run away! No. I will say that I'm really grateful, right? I wouldn't recommend it to everybody, but when it comes to Ernest and me, we know what works and what doesn't work for our relationship. We fight like every other pair of siblings, right? But we also know that when it comes to being thought partners, we're usually on the same page, right? And the same thing goes for Tavis, right? We all have a working relationship. We understand that everyone in this group we have our strengths, we have our weaknesses, but we know how to work around those weaknesses, how to support each other when we need to step in. And that's incredibly important. And that's not something that I would say is the norm when it comes to working relationships. I, I do not recommend the system that we have, but we, we've been really lucky um, in that it works so well for us right, uh, which is very unique and very special. And if you look at the rest of our team, we mentioned that, you know, we have other relatives, our parents are very involved with, you know, giving us advice and figuring out the next steps. Our mother is our accountant, right? Uh, we also employ our aunt who has been a social worker in the Atlanta school system for, oh my goodness, decades at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really, really special, the relationships that we have. But again, when you're thinking about what team you have, it's about, who fits your vision? Who has that skill set you're looking for? Uh, and if they have that, then you're good to go ahead. Um, but understand that there is a professional line and then there's the familial or the friendship line that you have with that person, right? And we try not to mix personal and uh, what's it called, our professional relationships. And we've been very fortunate to have a lot of people in our immediate circles that have the skill set that we need for Codehouse, right? Um, like you said, we mentioned all the family members, but like even our friend groups, like Tony, you know, like a lot of our friends work on Code Us as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's also important, and even something that we're all learning as building this out and as everything grows, is sometimes you will have to have hard conversations and not to take it, like you said, not take it personal. But you know, it's and it's hard sometimes having those hard conversations. I, I struggle with it all the time. It's like, oh, I don't want to call my sister or my friend and <laughs> uh, I'm slacking or, you know, or like, I don't want to hear that from them either, that I'm slacking or um, what have you. But it, it when it comes to the what's best for the organization, we need to make sure that we're holding each other accountable to make sure everything gets done efficiently and responsibly. Yeah, I think just to add on to both what JC and Ernest said, it's like just being able to have a good relationship with those people and always, you know, like, like me and Ernest, we fight all the time. But one thing that we always try to do is, you know, try to be transparent with one another, because a lot of times, like when you are able to have transparency within the relationship and, and with the business cooperation, like you're able to. Um, you, you're able to bypass those hurdles, right? And I think sometimes, like, when you aren't being very transparent, it, it, it leads for ambiguity. It leads for, you know, um, things to fuel up and, like, for people to hash out. Whereas if you're being transparent with someone up front, like, if, um, if Ernest or I or JC, we, if, you know, any of us have an issue, we, we're very transparent with one another. Because, like Ernest said, it's for the betterment of the organization and the betterment of the people that we're trying to help. So if you're able to be trans transparent, you uh, mitigate, like, any, any of those issues up front. Yeah, so how can someone have a tough conversation with someone that they're working with without, you know, maybe hurting their feelings or, like, offending them? Like, how do you all have a, a tough conversation? 
I think what's helped for us is having a meeting that sets expectations, right? Uh, for example, when I uh, took over the role of like, or not took over, but when I originated the role of um, director of curriculum and instruction, I am a professor outside of Code House, right? And so my day-to-day -day during the academic year is very much focused on the lab that I run, on the student that I have to help as a professor. And so when I talk to Ernest about, like, here, we're starting some new initiative, I'm very realistic about what obligations I can and cannot have when it comes to Code House. I know that I have only this amount of capacity per month to work on initiatives, but starting my summer months or my breaks, I can take on a lot more. Uh, and so I think that helps us manage expectations in terms of what needs to get done. Um, and I think that's been really helpful for us managing our code house relationship. Ernest Tavis. Yeah, I, I would also just saying like the, the benefit of being close <laughs> is knowing people's working styles or way they're going to react to things. So try to like, not only JC is talking about setting boundaries basically, right? But also when you do need to have those conversations, try to conform to how they're going to respond to it well, right? Like for me, like if I'm doing something wrong, you need to tell me straight up like this is exactly what's wrong and this is why. And if you don't have a reason for why, and you're just going to say it's wrong, then I'm not, I'm not going to hear it. <laughs> and that's just the way I work, right? And I need to be like, this is the valid reason. JC knows how to put me in, in my place and be like, Ernest, no, you need to look at X, Y, and Z, and look at this module over here, and this fact over here, and this diagram over here. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. <laughs> I understand now why I'm wrong. Um, but I, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think the benefit of us knowing each other is just knowing each other's styles and making sure that we can how those tougher conversations according to how we will best receive it, I guess. And you need to know yourself first, right? Whether that's taking like a 16 personalities test, whether you're an INTJ or whatever it might be, or taking some other type of personality test so that you're aware of how you work, right? Because if you're coming into this relationship, this professional relationship with a friend or a family member, and you're lying to yourself, well, then you're going to lie to them and you're going to create, create a lot of issues, right? So being honest with yourself, knowing what's going to work for you to be the most productive is incredibly important. Uh, so that way they can know how to adapt to what you need in order to be successful. Yeah. And those are really, really good points, guys. And I feel like everyone that's listening, if you want to work with a friend, family, make sure to take some of those tips and tricks. But let's kind of move into kind of just diversity in tech as, as a whole. Um, I know that you all highlighted that some of you weren't really exposed to STEM when you were younger and you just might have like learned about it, you know, in college. So why do you feel like STEM education, specifically for girls and children of color, is important in early years? Like, why do children need to know about STEM and not just like someone in like middle school or high school? And do you have any ideas on how companies can introduce STEM uh, to those um, in younger years in a fun and an engaging way? So I'll take the first stab at it. Um, so... I told you I'm a professor. I'm a professor at Spelman College, which is a historically black women's college. And I specifically teach a course called Creative Coding, uh, which essentially is teaching the, uh, what's it called, foundations of computer science to artists and humanities majors. So students who are not in the computer science department. And so one of the first things that I do 
on the first day of class is I rate the students confidence on a scale of one to 10, or I have them rate themselves about how do they feel about math, about STEM, about computer science. And this is my fourth semester. I just finished my fourth semester teaching it. So for two years, without fail, every day on that first day, the numbers that I get in 10 being the most confident, zero being the least confident is always one, zero, negative five, negative 25. I had a student write in negative infinity um, because that's how they feel when it comes to STEM subjects, right? Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to black kids, Latino kids, kids of color, um, but especially girls of color, we are not encouraged into the sciences and STEM subjects in the same way that our male counterparts might be. We are not encouraged to become scientists, mathematicians, software engineers, computer scientists in the way that our white counterparts might be. Um, and it breaks my heart to see that these students who have gone through K through 12 education are now in college uh, and still do not have that confidence, right? And so that's some of the, some of the things that I try to work on um, unlearning for those students inside my collegiate courses, but imagine if we can reach them at an earlier age. Imagine if we can get them in middle school, in elementary school, right? Code House, we specifically focus on high school and college education because we don't feel like it's too late for those students. Um, but we also applaud many nonprofits who focus on younger demographics, and hopefully Code House can one day do that too. But it's so incredibly important to stop um, any programs or any learning that might happen at those younger ages that might discourage students from one day pursuing STEM because we need those girls of color. We need those black girls to become computer scientists to build or the next generation of technology. Their voice is so important. Um, and that's why I, I am so happy to be a part of Code House and to come to work every day, you know, trying to change that mindset. Ernest or Tavis? Yeah, I would just say, like, for me, being a, well, previous software engineer, now technical program manager at Google, as even as an intern, you can just feel, like, on campus or just in your meetings, not even feel it, you can see it, right, being the only black person in a whole building, right, uh, being the only black person in the meeting, right, <laughs> and speaking up, and it's one thing to talk about it, but when you experience it, it's like, wow, there's something wrong here. And coming from a place like Warhouse and you see all these intelligent black folk from all these different HBCUs, it's like, why aren't there? It just doesn't make sense <laughs> that, that there's not enough of us out there, um, you know, in the Silicon Valley, but now like over the world um, in this tech industry. So I think like that experience has just truly rang true with me um, because I... I just, it, it didn't make sense to me for why, like, all this talent was being wasted, truly. Uh, and I think the power of the tech industry is so important because you're working on products that literally impacts thousands, if not millions, if not billions of lives. I think Google has, like, nine products that have over a billion daily active users. So that's, like, a crazy number to even conceptualize. And if we don't have people from all kinds of backgrounds with from all kinds of neighborhoods and different growing up and different areas of study, we're not going to make products that are best fine tuned for us. And it, it, that's like a weird concept, but like, there's like little things that we think about that we take for granted, but like, if they're not being fine tuned for all people, all kinds of backgrounds, then that could have some effects that we, we can't even perceive right now. 
And we've seen that with different things like artificial intelligence. Um, Jason and I and Tavis like to talk about like the the virtual reality headsets, right? Like if you had some black woman with big curly hair in those meetings on how these headsets headsets will be designed, mm-hmm. promise you they'll be designed a different way. Um, there's a lot of technology that just needs to make sure that we have, they have people from all kinds of backgrounds being created so that they can best serve us to the best of their abilities. So that's like, I think like the baseline for what makes me very interested to make sure that students know about these different opportunities. And the other part of it, I guess the second part of it is really closing that opportunity gap. And I talk about this with my team all, all the time. I work on a team called Education Equity at Google. Um, and it's all about helping marginalized groups get to places like Google and into the tech industry. But when we look at like how much money is in like a black household versus a white household, it's the margins are crazy, crazy different, right? So when we talk about extending an opportunity for a student from HBCU to get even an internship at Google, that means a lot more than just an internship. That's life-changing for not only that student, but that can be life-changing for that family. When we look at starting roles at these companies, total compensation packages can be well over $200,000. Like that is seriously life-changing for not only that individual. Most times in the black and brown communities, those individuals have to also provide and care for their families as well. So we're talking about systemic change within the black household, which is a lot larger than like, oh, these kids are just getting some internships. And so when we look at it from that angle, it's it, it brings on so many other kind of narratives rather than just, oh, we're just helping kids get into the tech industry. So those two things combined, it kind of makes a no-brainer for us to work on CODOS. Yeah, and Tavis, you also kind of t- uh, touched on like the generational wealth Mm-hmm. aspect and why that's so important to you or just to code house in general. No, most definitely. So like, like Ernest was saying, right. A lot of times, um, like just getting an internship can ultimately change the whole impact that you have on the family. So like for myself, like getting an internship at Facebook, I'm making about $50 an hour, you know, working at, mm-hmm. at Facebook as a freshman, I'm able to give back money to my to my mother and to my brother to pay for bills, to pay for, you know, electricity, like literally like, you know, things that, you know, I, I'll say like the typical, um, you know, modern modern um, family doesn't have to worry about. Like yeah. those were things that I was able to take care of for my family. And so like even now, like after receiving like all that, all, all those different internships and going into a full time offer, now I'm able to find ways to, you know, increase that generational that generational wealth. So like buying uh, my first property, you know, and being able to necessarily Yeah, and it's crazy to think, you know, at at, at twenty three, I was able to buy my first house. You know, and like for my mom, like that was uh, a moment for her. Like she was crying over the phone when I was signing the papers because she was like, this is something that I just never seen before, you know, and like the fact that you're able to make this possible so young. And so, you know, it, it, it really warmed her heart. So like, because she knows that I'm providing a better um, future, not just for myself, but for the people that come after me. And so like, that's why I think it's very important for us to really get engaged or get students engaged in tech so early so they know like the different possibilities that there are out there for them to put their families in better situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems like you guys are pretty much saying like, you know, it's not just about getting diversity into tech, but really giving them the opportunity that tech can give them, you know, the mm-hmm. opportunities and financial opportunities, social opportunities, um, working into tech. So there's probably companies tuned in right now, they love Codehouse. They want to partner with Codehouse. 
how do you feel like many large tech companies can start pipelining students from HBCUs or even, you know, PWIs that are diverse um, into large tech uh, companies? Yeah, I think with doing this work, it's been very interesting because um, you, <laughs> you can kind of tell when people are being genuine with mm. their efforts and not, right? Uh, I would never call this coming out by name, but I remember like being a student at Morehouse and they put flyers all over campus like, oh, hey, Morehouse University students, welcome, like, come to our informational tonight. And it's just like, I don't know what Morehouse University is. For clarification, if you don't know, we're Morehouse College, we're not a university. Mm. And it's like, you have the audacity to come to our campus and not call us by the right name. Like, that's just rude. <laughs> and lazy. Like, no, you didn't do your research, you, and you had, like, flyers printed out, you know? Um, and it just comes off in genuine when it's just like, oh, you're clearly just trying to read some diversity reports, you know, diversity hire reports, whatever the case is, and get your margins up or say, oh, we want to HBCs, but we can find talent. When you really want to make change in this industry, if you're really about it, you're going to take time, analyze the situation, see how there's a lot, a lot of systemic issues at hand here for why there's a lack of diversity in tech and make sure you're playing your role to make sure that we're we have a collective impact bringing students of color into the tech industry, right? So it's not that, you know, we're, there's just not enough machine learning based computer scientists coming from HBCUs. It's like, maybe there's not, not enough machine learning courses being taught, right? How can you play a role into teaching those courses at these different institutions so we can have more computer science majors with machine learning backgrounds so they can come into and be prepared at your company, right? Um, that's why I've always appreciated and why I've stayed with Google. Like Google in Residence is one of the programs that I think truly puts money and word uh, and, and action to where their mouth is, right? Um, Google in Residence, if you don't know, is where we have Google engineers come and teach at different HBCUs and, and HSI, Hispanic Serving Institutions. Um, I did it at Morehouse this last fall, so I was actually teaching all the freshmen and sophomore computer science students um, intro to computer science. Uh, you know, so that's actually taking real life professionals, experts in this in this field and connecting them back into the institutions who need it most. Um, and it's a big reason why I got to Google as a freshman, you know, decided to come as a so uh, software engineer when I graduated from Morehouse at Google. But it's programs like that that we need to make sure that we're starting to mimic because that is a very different narrative than oh, we sent a few recruiters to Morehouse University, whatever that is, and yeah. we just couldn't get any hires because, you know, they weren't qualified enough. It's like, no, there's there's a lot that needs to be done here in this system. Yeah, it's so true that you'll definitely be able to see the companies that actually really care about pipelining diverse talent and the ones that just are kind of just saying it to say just to meet a quota or something like that. Um, so to close out, um, I just kind of want to round Robin and for all of you to give like your best piece of advice for someone who wants to start their own business. Tavis, I'm calling on you first. <laughs> no, for sure. So I think my one piece of advice is to uh, really invest in an organization or a company that you, you yourself are truly passionate about and resonate with you and something that you can align with. Um, after you find that passion, everything else will align. I love that. JC, do you want to go? Sure. Uh, I'm going to say 
If you're starting a business, go ahead and get your Google Drive together. Get as much of your thoughts, your ideas down on paper, because if they're not down on paper, if you're not articulating them in writing, they might as well not exist, right? So get them down on paper, get your Google Drive started, and then go out, network as much as you can, go to conferences, go to events in your field, start getting your name out there. Uh, and as you get your name out there, the right people for your team will come and find you. Yes. And I'll say my advice is just to be proactive. Um, I think a lot of people think opportunities are just gonna be placed in front of you, but even if they are, and you don't take that step through that door, you're never going to achieve that opportunity. You're never going to take full advantage of it. So in everything that goes into making business, going to the tech industry, academics, like family life, if you're not proactive about the change that you want to see happen, everything's going to stay static. Mm -hmm. So make sure to be that change that you want to see. And that kind of goes with the quote of um, luck is oper or preparation and opportunity comes together. And then that's there you go. my favorite quote. Yes. So how can listeners get in contact with you or find Code House on social media? Yeah, our socials, our website is thecodehouse.org. And on socials, we're just at codehouse.org. So codehouse.org. Yes. And make sure you all check them out. And I know you guys have like a fellowship program. Not sure if the applications are still out, but Go ahead, take a look, and I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Bye. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. To catch all the latest updates, make sure to give us a follow on Instagram at The Diversified Podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Bye.